This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Mr. Roy Eugene Davis. He is the founder and the director of the Center for Spiritual Awareness. All authentic enlightenment traditions are honored, and the innate divine nature of every person is acknowledged. So uh, he has a long uh, history of spirituality and work in that area and uh, has a, uh, much to tell us about his experiences with uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, thank you so very much, Roy, for taking the time to come on our show today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Roy, uh, we really appreciate your taking the time. Um, this is going to be part of a series we're going to be doing on Yogananda, and um, it's uh, a thrill to be able to speak to someone uh, who knew him and was a disciple uh, for the last few years of his life. So uh, maybe we can begin by you telling us how you came to, uh, how you first discovered Yogananda and his work right. and, and how you came to meet him. Fine. I grew up on a farm in Ohio near Warren Youngstown area. And in high school, in the 10th grade, I read two books on yoga philosophy, which attracted my attention. And then in my senior year, I read Autobiography of a Yogi. I'd seen it advertised in a magazine and ordered it by mail. And when I read the book, I felt this is my connection. And I resolved that when I finished high school, I would go to California and meet Paramahansa Yogananda, which I did in December of 1949. I arrived two days before Christmas. I hitchhiked across the country from Florida. I had gone down to Florida from Ohio uh, for a month or two, hopefully to work and make some money, but that didn't work out. So I hitchhiked to California and arrived two days before Christmas at Mount Washington headquarters, the international headquarters of Self-Realization Fellowship. I met uh, Yogananda the first evening I was there. I was talking with Donald Walters, uh, who later became a Kriyananda and founded the Ananda communities. And while he was interviewing me, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda and uh, uh, Faye Wright and her sister came through the room on the way to Master's car outside, and Master approached me and shook my hand. And the first question he asked was, how old are you? And the second question was, do your parents know you're here? So <laughs> after, we got, after we got that out of the way, he, he said, I'll see you again. And he went out to the car. The next day, I attended an all-day meditation at headquarters. And then on Sunday, Christmas Day that year, I talked with him for 20 minutes in the afternoon, and he accepted me for discipleship training and told me I could stay. So that was my beginning. Well. And, and uh, from that point, uh, did you uh, enter the monastic order uh, that uh, Yogananda had set out for men and women? Or did you well, say it, in- it, was, it was sort of assumed that when you were there, it was, a, it was lightly, a lightly disciplined monastic order because Master was there, Yogananda was there, and we saw him usually every two or three days at least when we encountered him on the grounds or in the building. And he would stop and talk with us. There were no strict rules at the time, and I was there. We had an early morning meditation with the male monastics uh, for 30 minutes, and then we had a work assignment for the day, 
then an evening meditation at 5.30 for 30 minutes, and then, and then supper. Evenings and weekends, we were on our own and expected to meditate and study on our own. And so it was very, it was not structured at all. And then after about uh, four or five weeks after I was uh, had arrived, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda formally accepted me as a disciple and sent me to Phoenix, Arizona to help out with a branch center over there with instructions that I was to come back every two months for a few days wherever he was in California to see him, which I did for the next two, little over two years. Usually I went out to the desert retreat, 29 Palms, where he had a house where he was living the last two years, finishing his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita and other literary works. And occasionally at, my, at headquarters when there was a special function like a summer summer conference or or Kriya Yoga initiation or his birthday or Thanksgiving or Christmas meditation. So I had the opportunity to visit him uh, at least six times a year, plus those special occasions, and to have private time with him for private instruction and private encouragement, which was very helpful. Well, uh, in those private meetings you had with him, um, can you tell us what they were like, uh, what you learned, uh, w w did anything surprise you? Uh, usually they were just uh, occasions of being together. He would tell me stories about his experiences in India and his experiences with his guru, Sri Yukteswar, when he was young. Uh, now and then he would inquire as to my spiritual practices, my meditation practice, but not too much. Now and then he inquired and gave me some pointers on meditation. But mostly they were occasions of just being together and he would be talking and giving and saying things that motivated and inspired me. He was very encouraging and very supportive. And uh, with me, he always emphasized the importance of being totally dedicated to the spiritual path with the idea of being spiritually awake in the current incarnation. He never talked about the possibility of future embodiments. He never talked about, the only time he mentioned karma to me one, on one occasion, he said, when you came to me, yeah, you avoided a lot of future difficulty. And uh, by association with the guru, your uh, spiritual awakening will be quickened, and you have some material, some karma, some personal matters to work out yourself. So he always encouraged me to work on myself and to be spiritually conscious. And that was, and he was always like a, he was like a father or an uncle. He was very kind and very intimate and very supportive. I, right. Uh, during that period of time. Uh, did you get an, an, an initial uh, meditation instruction and then over the, your time with Yogananda, did you get directly from him a, a, a sequential sort of, uh, uh, or in a sequential way, get uh, different varying techniques uh, uh, over well, the period I, of time? I, I learned the basic meditation techniques uh, when I first arrived from the other fellows and just by association with, with them and by hearing him discuss mm -hmm. them with other people, I was formally initiated into 
meditation practice in what he called the Kriya Yoga tradition in August of 1950. And then uh, a year and a half later, five months before he passed, uh, he surprised me one evening when I was there and he ordained me to teach. And I understood it was to be in the future, not not at that time. Mm-hmm. I was still young and uh, not spiritually mature yet. So, but he passed five months later, and I was 20 years of age. So it was after he passed that uh, Faye Wright, who later became Sister Diamata and the president of the organization, uh, called me into her office and said it was his wish that I'd be the minister at the Phoenix Center. So I was installed there as the minister just at age 21, and I was two years over there by myself. And uh, that was an interesting, worthwhile experience because I didn't have any social life. I didn't have anyone to have to interact with. It was sort of like a Trappist monastery. I was mm-hmm. all by myself. Mm-hmm. And I only had to do the Sunday service and the Thursday night inspirational service, occasional phone call, occasional counseling session, but the rest of the time strictly on my own. So that was a great blessing for me. Interesting. Roy, you knew uh, Yogananda in the last uh, two years plus of his life. Yes. Um he died at 59. Yeah, um, too early. Yes. And um, taking care of the body was uh, an important part of his aspect of his teaching. And in those, uh, the context was, was spiritual. Um, his health seemed to uh, waver, in the, from yeah. what I can tell, in the last couple of years. The last but, couple of years, I, I noticed... Uh, there was a, a decline in his wellness. Uh, first summer when I visited him at the desert retreat, we went for walks together. He was very uh, spry. He walked briskly around the property and was very animated. And then later that year, I noticed he was uh, sort of sluggish and having difficulty walking. And uh, in uh, 1952, uh, 51, rather, rather probably 50, 51, when I visited him out at his retreat house in 29 Palms. I had just arrived and uh, was taken into the living room where he was sitting waiting for me. And uh, uh, Virginia Wright, uh, Faye Wright's sister, came in with a glass of pineapple juice for him, and he drank it and thanked her, and she went back to the kitchen. And I remember he turned to me, and he said, you see, for years I didn't take care of my health, and now they make me do it. <laughs> he, uh, he, he, of course, he was a positive thinker. He exercised lightly every day and went out on the veranda at the headquarters up near his room and exercised, got air, fresh air, and did some deep breathing. But sometimes he was overweight, and I know he didn't uh, the right kind of hours. He was a night owl. He would stay up sometimes till 2 or 3 in the morning, writing on his uh, articles and doing various things. Sleep three or four hours. Then he had a morning schedule that uh, where he spent the first three or four hours in his room uh, meditating in samadhi or superconsciousness, praying for the good of others, and uh, so on. Then active all day, and then again late at night doing his 
whatever he did late at night. And so I, I'm sure he was sleep deprived at times. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, but I just noticed <laughs> that there was a slowing down of his uh, physical energy <clears throat> the last two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roy, uh, I'm curious. Uh, meditation uh, obviously has become a very common word. Uh, Phil, uh, in his book, American Veda Chronicles, you know, Eastern knowledge is coming to the West. And when we hear about meditation now, it's often described as a way to relax, a, a way to combat stress and balance your life. When you first heard about meditation from Yogananda, how did he present it? And what, what was the goal or what was the reason he encouraged people to meditate? Yes, uh, even though at times in public uh, he would say, if you meditate, you'll develop your, the capacities of your brain to to be to concentrate better and so on. His emphasis was, in the yoga tradition, meditate for self-realization, for mm-hmm. spiritual enlightenment. That was the big emphasis. There were side benefits, of course, physiological and psychological, but the big emphasis was know who you are as a, as a spiritual being. And uh, so that's a, that was his approach. And if I could ask a follow-up question, did he give criteria uh, uh, experientially for a, for a, for a person as to what it meant uh, or what when they might realize if they were spiritually fully aware, self-realized? At times, he emphasized the importance for beginning meditators to cultivate uh, a peaceful mental and emotional state and get very deep inside to experience what he called bliss, which is not an emotion really, but mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a, the joyousness of self-recognition, of being inwardly centered. Um, of course, words, words you really don't do justice to explain the experience. When you say self-realization or self-knowing, what they're talking about is the, is the essence of being. Which, uh, which you have to experience to actually comprehend what it mm-hmm. means. Otherwise, you're, you're, you right. think you know, you have a concept, that that concept is not what it is. Uh, and in the Yoga Sutra, which is the basic text on um, meditation practice, Patanjali in the very first uh, chapter, the second verse, defines the purpose of yoga meditation by explaining that when the fluctuations and changes that ordinarily occur in the mind and awareness are quiet, absolutely quieted, and one remains conscious, then one is established in self-awareness or self-knowing. And then the next, the next one after that, the next sutra after that is uh, after the after the self knowing explanation is otherwise attention is att- inclined to become again identified with external phenomena and psychological conditions. So the whole point of yoga meditation is to quiet the mind and the emotions to experience what is refer- referred to as a superconscious state, a state of clarity of awareness, which is other than and superior to the conditioned states of awareness. And it's a matter of, of, of experimenting, really. You have to experiment and experience. Mm-hmm. Roy, if I can go back to your first uh, meeting with Yogananda in your book, <clears throat> excuse me, and we should 
mention that you uh, wrote uh, a kind of a memoir called Paramahansa Yogananda as I knew him. Yes, in fact, I, I'm just currently revising or adding to some more information to bring it out next spring in, paper, in a soft cover edition. Oh, very good. Well, not in comp- not in competition with yours. No, it's <laughs> a different book. You actually knew him, <laughs> and and the subtitle of your, of your book is "Early Experiences with My Guru." Um, and uh, one uh, section of the book, you talk about your first meeting with him, and I, I was struck by a couple of things. Uh, he says to you. Uh, you know, this is not a path of escapism, right, which yes. suggested to me that, uh, you know, people, and we know this is true, people might turn to a guru or go to an ashram thinking they'll escape the uh, hassles of the world, and he was right, letting right. you know uh, that's not in the cards. And, right. uh, and then he that's felt your pulse because he asked about yeah. your health. And I'm curious about that as well, because um, that's obviously, for people who know, uh, a form of diagnosis in the Ayurveda tradition. That's right. (coughs) Yeah. I didn't know anything about Ayurveda in those days, but a year before I met, well, five months before I met him, in the early part of 1949, six months before I met him, I was uh, in bed five months with rheumatic fever. And I uh, began convalescence in July of that year, and by November I was well and had gained weight and hit the road to California. And uh, one of the questions he he asked, as you mentioned, we were sitting uh, together on a small couch in his interview room at the Hollywood SRF uh, church, or temple they call it now, and in the conversation he casually asked, how is your health? And I said, very good as far as I know. And then he reached for, held my pulse just for a few seconds, and he said, "Yes, you're all right." Mm-hmm. And that was the, that was the the extent of it. I I didn't know then whether he was. Uh, I didn't know about pulse diagnosis in Ayurvedic system. I didn't know whether he was making a psychic contact or what was happening. Mm-hmm. But whatever he, whatever he discovered, he was satisfied. It was all mm-hmm. right. Right, so, uh, and I never. Go ahead. Go ahead. And I never had a health problem after that, mm. after that event. So, Well, you're doing pretty well now. <laughs> I'm doing okay. Yeah. In my 86th year, I'm still going strong. Going strong. You know, Roy, uh, in 1949, when you met the Yogananda, there weren't a lot of people in the West that uh, even had the concept of meditation. How did your uh, family and friends react to your deep commitment uh, to your spiritual path at that time? Uh-huh. Well, my mother had died uh, the summer before uh, the summer after I began convalescing from my illness, and uh, I, and I left home. I went there back out to California. I stayed in touch with my dad. He and I always had a good relationship, uh, but I had two older sisters and an older brother, and uh, they didn't know what I was involved with. Mm-hmm. I didn't try to explain, so I I just went out there and forgot my past except I did exchange postcards with my dad from time to time. And later on, I would, when I was in Cleveland, I, I would rent a car and drive down to see him. And we always got along well. The only thing he ever said about what I did, and, I, and over the years I sent him my books and literature and so forth, and the only thing he ever said was, he said, I don't understand everything you write about, son, but you're happy. 
And if you're happy, I'm happy. Oh, <laughs> that oh that's great. great. That's that great. Was, that was the, that was the end of that. Great wisdom. So. Mm. And um, eventually, um, you you didn't stay um, yes. with uh, SRF and the organization. You you had uh, some right. interesting um, chapters in your life. Yeah. And then well, set out to uh, be a teacher on your own. Tell us a little about that. I, uh, I, I, after four years, I decided I'd had, I'd had a four years of intensive uh, monastic uh, seclusion, and I enjoyed it very much. But I thought I should get out and express in the world. Before that, I'd grown up on a farm and hadn't, haven't traveled more than a hundred miles from where I was born. And uh, so I talked with uh, Diamata, who was then Fay Wright, still Fay Wright, and the sort of the. Uh, uh, executive secretary and of the organization, and told her my plan. And I remember she said, "Well, God is everywhere. You don't have to be under this roof to have a relationship with God." And so she said, "If you, uh, when you get settled, if you're in a city in, in a city where we don't have a meditation center, you can start one." So I thought, "Great." So I left on good terms, and I was immediately invited to come down and. Uh, to be examined for possible draft in the service. And uh, I went down for that, and I asked, what can I do to get this behind me? He said, well, you could volunteer for two years. And I said, okay. So I was in the medics for two years. And after Korea, I didn't have to go overseas. You mean you were you would have been subject to the draft? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when I was active clergy, clergyman at the Phoenix Center, I was exempt. Ah, uh, I get it. But uh, mm-hmm. now that I was no longer active for an organization or as a minister, I was up for grabs. So I, w- I was in the service for two years. And then uh, in January of 1955, a few months before I was due to get discharged, uh, Mr. Lin, who was president, passed. And I didn't think that would influence anything but when i, I sent a letter we should uh, roy just for the sake of listeners who don't know um let's just clarify that when yogananda passed the first a successor yes. the first president was a man named james lynn who was known as uh, rajasi uh, janakananda yeah he was a multi-millionaire businessman from kansas city who had met master in the early 1930s and became a very proficient meditator and highly self-realized. And he was a strong financial supporter of Self-Realization Fellowship. And in 1951, publicly, Yogananda, at a function there at headquarters, uh, announced that he was, Mr. Lin was his choice to follow him as president when he Mm -hmm. passed. So he passed in 55. And then I wrote letters to Diamond. I said, well, I'm... I'm going to get out of the service in four or five months, and I'm going to settle in Denver, Colorado, and I'm all ready to establish a center for SRF. And she wrote back, and she she said, now she was president, and she wrote back, and she said, well, the the rest of the board members don't agree. We've never had a minister who's left who continues to represent us in the field. So that understanding was between her, me, and Mr. Lynn. When he was gone, she became president, and she asked the board for approval of that plan, and they didn't know me, and they said, well, we don't want to do it now. So that meant I had to be independent. 
which is okay because uh, I do what I do. I'm free. Uh, and uh, also, looking back, some of the teachings uh, that SRF, I don't want to quibble about SRF, some of the things they teach now, I couldn't teach if I were representing them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, And you also got married. Got married, oh yes. I have two grown children in their 50s. In fact, one of my daughters is visiting now yeah. from Vermont, visiting down for 10 days. Right. So... Uh, uh, so, yeah, I've been married for quite a long time and have two grown kids in their 50s. And uh, I established this retreat center in Lakemont, Georgia in the early 1970s. And uh, people come here from all over the world. For And I teach the same thing that I learned from, from Paramahansa Yogananda, but I use, for the most part, plain English. I, I, it's not a heavy, it's not a Hinduized version of of the teaching, I just straightforward, and uh, then I've over the years, of course, I've traveled widely all over the world and lectured in many cities and so forth. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I I don't travel so much anymore. But uh, and I'm as you probably know I'm the only last male dis- direct disciple mm-hmm. of masters who's still still teaching. Wow, you know, uh, uh, Lenny, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Bernalini or Myrna Brown, who recently passed as the mm. president of SRF, uh, she, was a, one of the, she was one of the last few women disciples who knew Master personally. Right. Oh. But I'm the only one uh, the Master ordained, the only male that Master ordained, who is still teaching. The rest of them have passed on. Right. Uh, Roy, do you think that in, in into the future, in the next 10, 50, 100 years, uh, Yogananda's teaching will continue. Uh, do you think it, it, when uh, a teaching is as profound as his, uh, one way or another, it will continue? And are you concerned that it may get diluted or confused or muddled in some way over time? Oh, I think I think the um, Self-Position Fellowship is so well organized that uh, everything is in place for distribution of information that the, the general teachings will be go forward for many many decades mm-hmm. and they're well funded and they're they say well organized um, but uh, so they'll serve a lot of people in the future years mm-hmm. uh, with with a general teaching as you know when master Yogananda passed he didn't uh, Name a what is called a guru or teacher successor. Only he only named a president of their corporation, uh, who would also be a spiritual representative. But he didn't actually say this is the next guru in the succession right. in, the, mm-hmm. in the lineage. And so right. the organization now teaches that his teachings are the teaching or the guru. Mm-hmm. And um, as you develop the Center for Spiritual Awareness, um, and you have <clears throat> students and followers all over the world. Um, did you feel comfortable doing things differently from the uh, from SRF? And what has your relationship been, with them been like? Well, number one, I don't I, I don't really do anything differently. It's just that I don't. My approach is more uh, pra- not practical. What's the word? Uh, 
to the point, not so much of a do, not so much of a devotional approach as theirs is. Mm. They have a lot of devotion and chanting and worship and their services, and I don't do that. But as far as the basic teaching, basic based on uh, the Patanjali uh, Yoga Sutra uh, and the Bhagavad Gita and what I learned from Yogananda, the basic teaching is the same. Uh, I just don't talk about some of the things they talk about, like Satan and and uh, a lot of car- karma to work out and all that sort of thing. But and you but, don't uh, distribute written lessons. In... No, no, but I have a lot of books. Right, and and also also a printed a magazine that we send out, and also a, a magazine style newsletter that we send out to people who have initiated into Kriya Yoga meditation, mm-hmm. and we send that out to more than a thousand people, and and, uh, and I've written, as you know, a lot of books, and some of them have been translated in eleven languages and various countries. But uh, I, over the years, I maintained a close relationship with Faye Wright, or later Diamata, and I used to visit her on occasion at headquarters. And we had, we were very compatible. We mostly talked about the old days and inquired about each other's well-being. And so I had a good relationship with her for for many many years. Mm-hmm. And I know I know a couple of the monks there, the senior monks, and. I know them personally enough to talk with them and say hi and chat. So I, uh, and they understand that I'm not in competition. Mm-hmm. You know, no. there's no competition in this work anyway. Right. But I, I'm not in competition. <laughs> I support what they do, mm-hmm. uh, even though my approach is independent and a slightly different, different uh, way of presenting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roy, thank but you. I, but I teach. You go ahead. Yes. Go ahead. But I but I teach the basic methods and I, I offer initiation into the meditation techniques and we have ordained ministers out in the field and so mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one of them uh, we've had as a guest on the show, uh, Ellen O'Brien, and oh yeah, I'm okay. sure we'll have her very, back. Right, she's doing very good work in the Northern mm-hmm. California area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the stories you tell mm-hmm. in the book. Um, I found very charming and kind of uh, indicative of uh, some of Yogananda's uh, personal qualities. Uh, so I took the liberty of telling the story in my biography of him. Um, maybe you can share it with us. It's the ping pong story. Oh, <laughs> in 1950, Christmas time, 49, when I arrived, Master gave uh, the boys, he called them the boys, the younger men, they gave them a ping-pong table and a ping-pong set. They didn't have any place to put it, so they right off, so they put it in the lower hallway just outside the, the kitchen where the fellows used to have their meals. And uh, one evening I uh, was in there having a bowl of cereal by myself around 9 or 10 o'clock, and uh, I happened to be, go out the door like I was, I was going to leave and go to the boys' dorm. And uh, Master and Fay Wright and Virginia came down the hallway. They'd been out somewhere and had just gotten back from an errand or a social event. And uh, Master looked at me and he said, Oh, 
and then looked at the ping pong table and he motioned me to pick up a paddle and he picked up a paddle and he batted <laughs> it back and forth very gently. Then he slammed it, bam, you know. Then he turned to Fay and he said, who used to be the best ping pong <laughs> player around here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, he, you know, and we should say that um, one of the uh, interesting things I've discovered in researching uh, my book is that uh, when he was uh, young, he was quite a good athlete. Yes, he was a very fast runner, I understand. Yeah. And, and, um, I, understand, and I understand in the early, early thir- in the 30s, he and uh, when Mr. Lynn would visit California, the headquarters, they used to play tennis mm-hmm. out on the tennis court there. Yeah, there are stories of him challenging people to tennis or to races, even mm-hmm. you know when he was, uh, well, we would think of as sort of young middle age, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's yeah. no reason a, a self-realized person, a saint, can't be a fast runner, right? <laughs> so, uh, no, yeah. I think... Um, uh, LeBron James is probably a saint. And uh... <laughs> There you go. Uh, Roy, thank you so very much for taking the time to come. I want to say, Phil, any final questions or points uh, you want to make? No, I would, I would uh, ask Roy if he had any uh, thoughts about uh, Yogananda, the person or the teacher that he uh, hadn't mentioned and he'd like to uh, share before he goes. Oh, he, he was very profound, and uh, on the platform, you probably have heard that on the platform he was very charismatic, and, and an orator. He could, uh, you know, he could talk and tell stories and inspire people. And also, uh, at times from the platform, he was very intimate and uh, spoke very quietly. And when you, were, especially when you were with him in person, he was just very sweet-natured. Mm-hmm. And very gentle. Uh, although, you know, when you, if you had a relationship like I did and the other fellows and the other young women there, a teacher-student relationship or a guru-disciple relationship, when you needed to be uh, given some guidance or direction, he, he, he'd do it. He'd do it. He didn't hold back, but he was always gentle when he did it. Mm-hmm. He would say, don't you think it would be better to do this and so? Mm. Or... Uh, tell a little story and say, you be like that. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, he was gentle. And, uh, and you wanted to do what he asked you to do because you knew it was right. And he, he, uh, he was nice about it. So I never had any, any uh, reason for him to discipline me or to be strict with me or anything because I always uh, tried, to, tried to do everything he said and I found it to be beneficial. Whenever I visited him, almost invariably before I would depart and go back to Phoenix, he would say, now you stay in tune with me because I can help you. If you then, But if you're not in tune, it's like having static in the mental radio and it's more difficult to help you. And by attunement, he meant spiritual and mental rapport. You know, you, you are, have a good relationship with someone that you are very close to mentally and spiritually and emotionally. You don't have to always be with them physically to sort of feel their presence or feel that you feel their presence mm. and have a have a sense of harmony with them. And, that, and that's what it meant to be in tune. Don't, don't be resistant. Don't have doubts. Don't be argumentative. Just 
be, be in harmony. Very good. And uh, so that, that was that was very easy to do with him because he was so sweet natured. We should add that uh, you know other uh, direct disciples have stories of him being pretty tough on them at times. So you seem mm. to have been spared. <laughs> <laughs> he was a good student. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Roy, for taking the time it. to come on. It's okay. wonderful. I, Fabulous I pre- stories. I appreciate appreciate talking to both of you. Great. Thanks so much, Thank Roy. You. Be well. Be well. All right. Take care.